Amen. You know, that song, A Little More Faith, is uh, thoroughly biblical because, uh, as I think uh, you guys will know here, it, uh, when it comes to getting saved and coming to faith in Christ initially and being born again, it's faith the size of a mustard seed. It's all it takes. It's the right object, trusting in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for our sins. But as believers, Scripture is very clear that there are levels of faith. Jesus, for example, commended the centurion for having great faith. Uh, he often rebuked the disciples for having little faith. So faith can be rich, poor, weak, strong, wavering, steadfast. It can be great or weak. Uh, and so uh, what a great reminder that song was to having faith, to trusting God no matter what. And uh, as we begin our uh, message uh, today, uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles and you want to uh, turn there, that would be great. But this is a non-traditional text that hopefully will strengthen our faith. You know, I hope that everything we do here at Plum Creek Chapel, if you're not a believer, I hope you're the most uncomfortable person in the room right now. And I hope you don't leave here comfortable. We want you to leave here under conviction, conviction of your sin and your need for a Savior, and recognize that only by trusting Him can you be saved. If you're a believer, we hope that uh, your faith will be increased, that your faith will be strengthened, that this will draw your attention to the Word of God, everything that we do, the songs that we sing, the, the passages that we look at in Scripture. But, um, you know, I think this, this message... Uh, you know, this passage, rather, really reflects the essence of the, uh, are we still on? We lost our signal, huh? So I think our live streamers can see, but if everybody wants to come and gather around my computer, then we can, then we can all see. We'll see if we can't get it figured out. I don't know what happened to our screens. All, all five of our screens went out here in the room, but uh, anyway, while he's working on that, uh, we may have to just preach the way Jesus did without technology, which would be a real uh, trial for me, I promise you. Um, but I think this Matthew 11 really reflects the message of Christmas as good as, as really any, uh, any message. Um, so to introduce it, let me... Now he's taken over my screen. There we go. Praise God. All right, we're back up and running. All right. Um, Oh, come all ye faithful. We're going to sing that here at the end of our service today. But that simple word, come, that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Come. It's a, it's a comforting word. It's a welcoming word, right? Come on over. Come here. Or dad's coming home. Or now these days, for us, it's the kids are coming home for Christmas. Or come one, come all. Or how about this? Come back anytime. It's a comforting word. Around our house when we have supper, you know, someone will holler out, come to the table. And, uh, but what if you don't get, it, get invited to come over? What if you don't have a, a place to come home to? like a lot of people. What if no one ever says, come back anytime? Our time has been called the age of loneliness, and not too long ago, Fortune magazine ran a story entitled, quote, chronic loneliness is a modern day epidemic. 
and they released new data from broad studies showing just how bad this problem of loneliness has become. They say that at least one in five Americans suffers from chronic loneliness and a much, much higher percentage suffers from occasional or persistent loneliness, according to that study. And maybe why the Lord put this passage on my heart as I was thinking about this Christmas carol is that this time of year, those numbers go up dramatically around the holidays. You know, it's ironic when you think about it, while we're more connected than ever before, I mean, here we are holding a worship service where sometimes we'll have several hundred people streaming our worship service while we're having it in person here. And yet, with social media and everything else, even though we're more connected than ever before, it seems like the problem of loneliness is only getting worse. In fact, some research shows that Social media actually exacerbates the problem. We become so conditioned to the instant reaction and instant interaction through social media. But um, it, it leads to all kinds of physical and psychological problems. Loneliness does. Health problems. Heart disease. The bottom line is loneliness hurts. And while it may be reaching epidemic levels, it's certainly not new. We've all been there. We've all been there. And as I'm going to say in just a moment, when we get to our text, Jesus came to the earth to, to reach a lost and dying world that was lonely. It was a tough time in that Roman Empire. God's people, the nation of Israel, they really lost its way. The promise of a Messiah was now centuries old with no fulfillment, and they began to wonder, is he really coming back? Is this it? Is this as good as it gets? It was a tough time. Now, some of you that are my age and older might remember the, uh, the 1970s pop rock band America. Interesting story about the band America. It formed actually in England by uh, three sons of U.S. Air Force personnel who were stationed in London. So they were Americans, but they were stationed in London because that's where their families were. Dewey Bunnell, Dan Peake, and Gary Beckley. And their biggest hit which I'm sure everyone in this room probably will recognize, even if you didn't know it was by the band America, is Lonely People. It was the second release from their 1974 uh, album, and uh, it reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100, and Dan Peake, the uh, solo uh, artist in that, uh, or the one singing the lead, I guess you would say, uh, it's his only song that was credited to him that ever reached uh, the top ten. It spent over a week on the easy listening top ten chart as well. But the story behind Lonely People is really interesting. Dan Peake wrote this song as an optimistic response to the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby. How many of you remember Eleanor Rigby? Surely you've heard of that one, right? Well, Dan Peake thought that Eleanor Rigby was a, quote, in his words, an overwhelming picture of the masses of lost humanity, drowning in gray oblivion, end quote. He would recall being, quote, lacerated the first time he heard the lyrics of the chorus of Eleanor Rigby that go, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? Where do they all belong? So he wrote Lonely People to encourage all the lonely people not to give up until you drink from the silver cup. That's the line he used. He later said that was a metaphor saying that it's, it's possible to learn from others' experiences and be refreshed and encouraging. Well, in his post-America career, Dan Peake uh, would, would often use lonely people to close out all of his concerts. And uh, he would 
introduced the song to end his concert uh, with words to the effect something like, Jesus is the answer to loneliness. And then on the advice of a fan, he ended up amending the actual lyrics of the song to convey a message about our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he actually, in 1986, re-released the song on a new album with these new lyrics. And he replaced the original lyrics, Ride that highway to the sky and you never know until you try, with Give your heart to Jesus Christ. Now, we might say theologically, Peak might have been able to choose a better way to express the means of salvation. The Bible never uses the phrase, Give your heart to Jesus Christ. But he was spot on about the fact that the only answer to loneliness is with Jesus Christ. And I want to play, just since we kind of set the stage with this song, I want to play that song for you and watch this accompanying uh, video. forget is that people come into this room every week and they bring burdens and your proverb says the heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy um, you know we all have hurts and experiences and heartaches uh, 
But that's what makes the, the message of Christmas so powerful. is because God sent His Son into the world to give us hope. And, and this invitation that we're talking about this morning is a universal invitation. Christmas is for all the lonely people in the world. In fact, Christmas is for a lonely world, you might say. Um, it's the greatest invitation of all time, beginning with the shepherds, like we talked about in the 9 o'clock hour, continuing with the wise men, and for the past 2,000 years, people have been invited to come to a manger, which leads to a cross, which leads to an empty tomb where they can find rest for their souls. When Jesus arrived on the scene in the first century, the Greco-Roman world was plagued by despair and fear and loneliness. The Jews had been in captivity to the Romans for many years, and the future looked very bleak. The Jewish leaders had sold out to the Romans and conspired to oppress the common class of Jews. Enter Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little background to our text in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, let's start with the big picture. The author, of course, was Matthew. Uh, he was writing to primarily Jewish people. He wrote it in roughly 44 to, 4, to 50 A.D., one of the earliest books in the New Testament, contrary to what a lot of modern scholars suggest. This is the accepted date for 1,900 years. Um, the theme of Matthew is that salvation is only in Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. He's here. He's come. God burst through the realm of eternal, put on human flesh, and came to save the world. Theologically, Matthew reminds us again and again that faith righteousness is the only kind of righteousness that will get you into heaven. You can't be self-righteous enough. No matter what you're facing this morning, whatever heartaches, you can try sheer willpower. You can read all the self-help books you want, listen to all the self-help gurus, but it's not going to be a lasting peace. You're going to be constantly having that conversation in your head of how to deal with those negative thoughts, those painful thoughts, those sorrows when they come up. And you might find fleeting relief, but you'll never find true relief until you have faith. That's why I love that song that we sang about a little more faith. And Matthew juxtaposes the self-righteousness of the Jewish leaders and all those that thought they had it all together with the faith righteousness of the you know, harlots and tax collectors and the dregs of society who recognized they have nothing to offer and they just come empty-handed and say, I'm a sinner, have mercy. And that's how you get saved. In the immediate context of this, these three verses, Matthew 11, 28 to, 20, to 30, you have in chapter 10, Jesus commissioning of the disciples. We've actually looked at chapter 10 quite a bit the last few weeks in our study of eternal rewards. Um, and then in the beginning of chapter 11, you have the famous interaction with John the Baptist who late in his life actually questions, is this really the Son of God? Is Jesus really the Messiah or should we look for another? Questioning Jesus. And then Jesus, right before we get to this uh, passage, uh, has those scathing words of rebuke for those three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Uh, verses 20 to 24. And then you get to verses 28 to 30. Jesus' precious invitation with that sweet word come he begins come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon me and learn from me 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The word souls there just means lives in the context. He says, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Christmas is a great invitation, announced by the angels, designated by the star, celebrated by uh, the shepherds. And as we celebrate it now 2,000 years later, I don't want anybody to miss the the, the invitation that Christmas is. Yes, there's a lot of theology there. Our entire salvation of mankind is built upon a hill outside of Calvary. And theologically, it's the atoning work of Christ to pay our penalty for sin. All of that's true. But it's also an invitation. And as I read these three verses, I, I see five elements of a gift. Uh, we, we could kind of take these elements in any gift situation, and they're always going to be present. But they're especially present in this gift of Christmas and in this passage. So the offer comes first. And that's that sweet word, come. Come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. It's an open invitation. It's whosoever will may come. Isaiah the prophet predicted it this way. He said, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Remember, man's greatest need is eternal salvation, and it is absolutely free for us. It costs God His own Son, and it costs God's Son His very blood, but it costs us nothing. It's paid for by the blood of Christ, like that great old hymn, Jesus paid it all. In Revelation chapter 21, the Bible ends with some invitations like this. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And then chapter 22, at the very end of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. There's that word again, come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts, come. Are you thirsty today? If you don't know the Lord, you, you're, you're, that thirst is, a, is, is an internal response to the revelation of God saying there's more to life and, and I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and, and I, I have this desire to come to Christ. And here he says, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. If you're here today and you're a believer, you might walk through some dry and arid times as well and find yourself thirsty. Not for eternal life. That issue has been settled the moment you trusted Christ. But for the the contentment, the peace, the joy, the hope, those, all of those qualities that get us out of bed every morning, those can ebb and flow, can't they? Depending on life circumstances. Whoever desires, let him come. We are justified freely by his grace, and we're all in the same boat. That's why I said Jesus came to a lonely world, and the world hasn't changed. Sin did not self-correct. Depravity didn't fix itself. It's getting worse and worse, and people are just as much in need of salvation today. Whosoever will may come. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish and have everlasting life. So there's the offer, but then we have the giver. Notice He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Uh, this theme runs all the way through Scripture, that salvation, hope, peace, joy, 
overcoming depression and can only come from God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Prophet Isaiah again said, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Paul said in his first letter to Timothy, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And then the angels announced, There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. That Savior is the giver of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He's using a physical metaphor there of physical food and drink to speak of believing. If you read the whole chapter of John chapter 6, he, he clearly says, believe. He ends the chapter towards the end of the chapter, verse 47, with verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. So eating the bread and drinking uh, the cup are just metaphors for belief. That's how you come to Christ. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and you paid my de sin debt on the cross and I'm going to come to you as the only one who can forgive sin and save me. Jesus himself said, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Notice, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on myself. The giver. Just as God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Himself gave His life for us that we might have uh, life. Zechariah the prophet put it this way, uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. This is the prophecy of John the Baptist. And... Uh, he rode in on the back of a donkey and presented himself to the nation of Israel. Of course, we all know what happened. In God's divine uh, providence, they uh, rejected the king. They crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown. And uh, just a few days later, he was hanging on a cross. And you know what put him there was you and me. And, uh, and yet, in his great love, his unspeakable great gift that he gave us, we can still have a relationship uh, with him by faith. John tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So you've got uh, the invitation and then you've got you know the giver. The offer and then the giver. And then the third component of a gift obviously is you and me, the receiver. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. You know, the first century Jews were burdened and weighted down by the works of the law. They were trying to measure up to the impossible standards of God's righteousness based on their performance. And, and, and nothing's ever changed. You know, here we are 2,000 years later. You may not be a, a Jew trying to keep the Levitical laws and sacrifices and festivals, but so many people today are still trying to measure up based on their performance. They view God as some kind of a retributive God who functions only as in some form of quid pro quo or as long as I do good, He'll bless me and as long as I, if I do bad, He won't and I've got to measure up and you know, keep every jot and tittle of the law and then I'll be good enough. And If you're thinking that way, you have placed a heavy burden on your life. And the sad thing is, 
even many believers who understand grace and understand the freeness of salvation, that there's nothing we can do to earn it, nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling, even though we understand that, we still end up living our lives day after day under the burden of the law, whatever law we've created. And uh, we need to remember, and Jesus is going to talk about that in the, in the next verse, uh, that this same invitation that involves eternal salvation, which is settled once and for all, continues to go forth. We're saved by grace, and we're sanctified by grace. We grow in our faith by grace. Jesus said in John 5, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Remember, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were experts in the law, the Old Testament law and prophets. That's what he's saying here. And, and you think that by keeping these laws, you can have eternal life. But you, you miss the point, he says. They're all pointing to me. That's why Isaiah the prophet talked about in his suffering servant psalms, uh, you know, how he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and so forth. But he noticed, he said, but you're not willing to come to me. See, it's, it's an invitation. And Christmas is the greatest gift. Are, are, have you come to Christ? And are you continuing to come back and feed on His goodness and feed on His faithfulness? Jesus goes on to say in John 8, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you don't believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. See, sometimes people get angry with God and say, How can a loving God send anybody to hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. God is doing everything He possibly can to rescue us from hell. But He doesn't force this gift upon you. Forced love is no love at all. We got ourselves into this predicament when we sinned and God is rescuing us from it and He says, come one, come all. Come, drink the living water. And then that brings us to the gift itself, which in this passage here in Matthew, Jesus uses rest, rest for your souls. And uh, in the context, this word rest is talking here about eternal salvation being made right with God. Those who are who labored are heavy laden under the law need to be made right and be at perfect peace with God. Romans 5.1 says we are justified by faith and thereby have peace with God. The word rest there is the Greek word anapao and it means, notice, to revive, to rest, to gain relief from toil. It's often translated refresh. Um, and think about this idea of revive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by coming to Christ, we can find that rest. In Paul's sermon uh, at Pisidian Antioch on his first missionary journey, he said to the folks gathered there, he says, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. What are you doing to try to justify yourself, make yourself righteous before a holy God? In Romans, Paul put it this way, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Abraham believed God and was justified. It wasn't his works. John said, as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. The verse I quoted earlier in chapter 6, Jesus said, he who believes in me has 
everlasting life. That's the gift. So you've got the, the offer. You've got the giver. You've got the recipients. And then you've got the gift itself. God's the giver. We're the recipients. The gift is eternal life. And if you've believed in Christ and Him alone as the only one who can forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life, then in that instant that you believed, you passed from death to life, John 5, 24, you shall never come into judgment. And Jesus says, I give you eternal life and you will never perish. But unfortunately, so many believers who are part of the family of God, they're born again, still suffer from this plague of loneliness. All the lonely people. And that's what brings us to the second part of Jesus' admonition here, which is to believers. I think verses 28 to 30 clearly have, verse 28, an application for unbelievers to come, and then the rest of it is, now once you've come, what's the stewardship? What's the stewardship? The stewardship is then to take my yoke upon me, upon you, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. And learn from me, for I am lowly and heart, you will find rest for your souls. Slightly different word for rest here, but the word soul, there, remember that's just psuche in Greek. It can mean the whole person. Uh, it doesn't mean the eternal aspect of man. It doesn't mean the immaterial aspect of man. It's a word that just means man, the, the whole of man, material and immaterial. And um, if you're a believer and you've suffered from depression or discouragement or loneliness or heartache, a lot of people suffer from a heartache this time of year. You know, when you lose someone you love, even though you know they're in heaven, and you know it's just a temporary separation, you're going to see them again, it hurts. Because there's an empty seat at the Thanksgiving table. There's an empty spot on the couch when you gather around the Christmas tree. And you're opening presents. And that hurts. <clears throat> and so... So the rest for our souls that he's talking about here is that contentment, that peace, that joy. And notice he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So many Christians live with this mistaken notion that the Christian life is a burden, that it's about a do's and don'ts, that like God is some kind of a cosmic killjoy and we just have to just be, you know, bitter and, and just, you know, self, uh, you know, hurting ourselves all the time and just think like the Christians can have no fun and that Jesus has all these lists of do's and I better not step out of line. That's not it at all. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's referring there to an agricultural metaphor of the yoke. And, uh, you know, work is easier with two people. We were moving some furniture yesterday and uh, there was no way one person, I don't care how big and strong you are, was going to move some of those, that hutch and another piece of furniture no way two people it's doable and Jesus says come alongside me let yoke yourself to me let me show you the way the word easy uh, is a word uh, that is the Greek word krestos it's only used seven times in the New Testament and it's uh, it, it has the idea of that which causes no discomfort what's interesting is this is the only place it's ever translated easy um, I'm not sure why the English translators chose to translate it easy there in the New King James. Every, everywhere else it's translated kind, krestos, kind, gracious, goodness. 
For example, in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That word kind, that's Christos. And in Romans 2.4, Knowing the goodness of God, that word goodness is Christos. 1 Peter 2.3, If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, Christos. So what does that mean? This yoke that Jesus calls believers to, it's a gracious yoke. It's a good yoke. It's a kind yoke. Christ's yoke is to be welcomed, not feared. Remember what John said in 1 John 5, 3. I love this verse. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And then he adds, and His commandments are not burdensome. See, we have the mis this mistaken notion about the things that God sets forth in His Word, the blueprint for life, the way we should live, morally and otherwise. Again, we think it's, oh, man, you know, look at all, all those unbelievers are doing. Look at all the fun they're having. And, you know, God just doesn't want us to have any fun. That's not it at all. His commandments are for our own good. It will go well with us. When we don't follow God's word as believers, then we're actually yoking ourselves in bondage, being entangled again by sin. See, God's not going to force us to obey any more than he forces us to get saved. It's a choice. Come one, come all. Jesus draws us to Him, for sure. The Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me, Jesus said. But He doesn't force us to be saved. You've got to accept the invitation. I could offer you a gift all day long, but it's not yours until you take it. And eventually, if you don't take it, I'm going to give it to somebody else, right? But God is... is steadfastly, perpetually offering this gift. And then once we've accepted it, then we have this new life in Christ. We have a new nature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Now we still have that old fleshly nature there rearing its ugly head. And Paul says in Galatians that the two are contrary to one another. They, 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 the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. We don't end up doing the things that we want. But whenever we choose to cater to the old man, the flesh, it's like we're putting ourselves in a yoke with sin. But we've been set free from that. And instead, we need to step alongside our Savior. The same one who saved you is the one that will sustain you and help you and guide you and lead you. Uh, look over at Romans chapter 8. I don't have it on the screen, but in Romans chapter 8, another powerful voice, uh, beginning in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So I think we need to pick up the previous verse because he refers to these things. What things is he talking about? Well, he says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, <clears throat> these he also justified. And we know unambiguously throughout the Bible and especially in Romans that that justification happens because of our faith. So he called us. He justified us. How many of you have been called? You felt the Spirit of God calling you to be saved and you believed the gospel and you were saved. Raise your hand. Okay, these first two things apply to you. You were called. You were justified. And then notice he says, whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Just like the others. Actually, the aorist tense. Now, how about this question? How many of you in this room have been glorified? Well, it's a tough one to answer, right? Because I'm looking at you and I can see... The flat, you know, the, the wrinkles, the creaky knees. We're not, none of us have been glorified. But from God's perspective, 
dare I say, God in eternity, I won't say the phrase, but God in eternity, it, it, we've already been glorified. We're as good as glorified, right? It's as good as done. You can count on it. Take it to the bank. Our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We've been glorified. And then Paul says, well, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But here's the verse that came to my mind a second ago. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I mean, if you had faith to believe that Jesus Christ can save you from your sins, are you really going to fall back into this lonely, depressed attitude thinking, oh, how am I going to get through this? And what woe is me? Paul says, there's nothing God won't give you. There's nothing He can't do. Um, notice James tells us that it's not the one who simply listens to the Word, as you do every time you come to Plum Creek Chapel, uh, but it's the one who does the work. That's who's going to be blessed. So that's the stewardship. Is to walk by faith. Faith produces obedience. The more we know God, the more we'll trust Him. The more we trust Him, the more we'll obey Him. And as we do that, we just develop this uh, intimate, loving fellowship and closeness to the Lord. The Bible calls that abiding. Abiding in Christ. Jesus told the disciples just hours before He was betrayed and arrested in the garden, when He was with them in the upper room, Judas had already left. It was just the eleven. And He said, look, He said a lot of things in that upper room discourse. But in the context of, look, it's about to get really tough. You're going to have tribulation in this world. I'm going to go away. But he says, here's what you need to do. Abide in me. That word abide is the word meno, meaning remain close to. You want to know how to overcome loneliness? It's come to Jesus. All the lonely people in the world come to Jesus. So there you have it. Very simple. Nothing profound that we understand a gift, even though we might not have itemized it this way. We understand there's an offer. Someone's doing the giving. Someone's doing the receiving. There's a gift to be offered. And then once you have that gift, there's a stewardship of uh, continuing to trust God with a little more faith, like we talked about in the song, and live by faith, not by sight. So what's the takeaway? Well, when... Jesus, the eternal Son of God, burst through the realm of time, space, and matter, put on human flesh, made Himself vulnerable. He did so to offer the greatest gift in the history of mankind. He came arms open wide and said, This is for all the lonely people. Come to Me. Come to Me. So the takeaway is if you've uh, not received the gift of eternal salvation, come to Jesus today by faith. Simply trusting in Him. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. And today I'm trusting in You as the only one that can save me. If you have, then come to Him every day. Let Him lead and guide you. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And I love the words of the song we're about to sing. O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold Him, born the King of angels. Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this simple invitation that we see from the heart of our Savior, open arms, saying, come to Me. And Lord, I know there are a lot of hurting people today in this world and a lot of people in this room, maybe a lot of people listening or watching online. And Father, I just pray 
that you would help us to fall in love with your Son and our Savior all over again, knowing that only in Him can we find ultimate lasting peace and even sustaining peace to make it through these unsettling times. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.